in Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in Newport Rich. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. The longer you continue to resist the gospel, the closer you get to a situation that makes it impossible for you to come to Christ. And that's why you should never put off coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some people who say, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow, you may not have tomorrow, for one thing. You may die today. And secondly, if you have tomorrow, you may not come to him tomorrow because your heart may be too cold and calloused. In Psalm 95, God warned his people. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. That's a stern warning, isn't it? But God offers these warnings to protect us, because he loves us. This is Verse by Verse. Welcome. It's nice to have you here today for another Bible class of the air. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today he will be wrapping up his treatment of a scripture passage that has troubled and confused countless readers. It begins in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and then goes on through chapter 6, verse 8. Pastor Steve has been doing something that's unusual for him. Normally, he teaches expositorily, or a verse at a time. But as he was teaching in John's Gospel, he came to those wonderful promises Jesus made in chapter 10 about our security in him. So we've been spending some time finding out what the Bible says about the safety of the sheep, or our eternal security. This passage in Hebrews 6 is often used in defense of the doctrine that we can lose our salvation. Could it be, though, that the author is writing to unbelieving Jews who have heard and understood the gospel, but hardened their hearts to it? Hebrews chapter 3 quotes the psalm I just read. Well, what happens when we harden our hearts to God? Here's Pastor Steve to tell us. So what's the spiritual consequences of this? And I've been saying this all along, but let's probe into this. The spiritual consequences, and that's verses 4 through 6. He says, In the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. If you have all of this, and then you've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God. They put him to open shame. Not only does God not permit salvation to some who have so hardened their hearts, but it becomes literally impossible to renew them again to repentance. Impossible. These verses describe a person who rejects Jesus Christ at, listen, the highest level of knowledge and conviction and understanding, the highest level. They have everything they need to to receive him. And if he doesn't accept Christ at this level, then he certainly won't accept him at a lower level, right? If he doesn't accept him when the Spirit of God is so moving in his life at such a high level of intensity, then at a lower level, at a lesser level, he's not going to. Let's examine the level of knowledge and awareness and conviction that they had, because some of you may have had the same thing, or you may be nearing that point, and I want you to see it's a dangerous thing. These warnings are serious. They've once been enlightened. What does that mean? The light of the gospel had broken upon their minds. That's the work of the Spirit of God in illuminating our minds so that we might understand the meaning of the gospel. 
unless he gives us an understanding, we won't understand it. In fact, it, is so, it was so clear and sharp in their mental perception that they didn't need this enlightenment to take place anymore because the word, the Greek word for once, doesn't mean just once in the past. It means once and for all. Once and for all, they had an enlightenment. In other words, the work of the Spirit of God was so thorough in illuminating their understanding of the message of salvation that it never needed to be repeated in order to make the, the truth clear to them. It was crystal clear. They had the clearness and the sharpness at one time to understand what the gospel was all about. They had once been enlightened. Now, some people don't understand the gospel, and we need to explain it to them, and the Spirit of God needs to give them understanding. There are, there are some who think that every time the gospel is presented that people are just going to fall down and, and come to know the Lord. That's not true. The Spirit of God works behind the scenes and in a person's heart to give understanding to the gospel and bring conviction. It isn't just the word. It's the Spirit of God taking the word and opening their heart to the gospel. That's what happened with them, but they still didn't respond. It says, the writer says, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. These people actually had a personal experience with the heavenly gift. They didn't just take a sip or sample it, as John Calvin said. John Calvin said that all oh, taste means, means they sipped it. They didn't really drink of it. As much as I respect John Calvin, that is not what it means. The Greek uh, expression for tasted means experienced. Just as when Jesus died on the cross, he tasted death for every man. It means experienced. Now, what is the heavenly gift? That's really the key. What's the heavenly gift? Uh, some say it's referring to the Spirit of God. I don't think so, not in this context. In other places, the Spirit of God is called the, uh, a gift, a gift of, from heaven. But he's mentioned in the next, the next uh, part, the next expression. I think he's referring to the blessings of salvation that, that come with, with the Lord Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of all the prophecy. In fact, as you look through Hebrews, you see the contrast between heavenly and earthly. The earthly is, is the earthly priest, Levi. Uh, the, the Levitical priesthood. The heavenly is Christ. There's an earthly tabernacle. There's a heavenly tabernacle. So what is, what is the contrast here? The contrast is, is earthly and heavenly. And the heavenly gift, I take it, refers to the blessings that come with salvation that's brought by the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. And I take it that when he says they've tasted the heavenly gift, that it means, that the writer means to tell us that these people had entered into an understanding and appreciation and actually had benefited personally, experienced personally, uh, the glorious truths of the fulfillment of the old covenant and the person and work of Christ. In other words, these people had witnessed the glories of messianic fulfillment in Christ. And because of their association with the message of Christ and the people of Christ, the true Christians, they had actually experienced a certain appreciation for the blessings that accompany salvation. I don't think they experienced salvation or that would make them saved, but I think they, they had a taste of it. They experienced the blessings that come with that. And I can relate to this. In fact, I think that, that one of the works, one of the pre-salvation works of the Holy Spirit is to give non-believers a, a taste, an experience of what salvation is all about. I can look back on my own life and see that uh, before I came to know the Lord, by my association with the Word of God, by my association with the people of God, by, by being with them, by observing them, uh, there was a taste of salvation. I didn't have salvation, but I was excited about it. In fact, I, I started witnessing before I even knew the Lord. 
I started telling people about I was so excited about Christ, and I really think that I had become one who had tasted of the heavenly gift. I, I actually knew the blessings. I had an appreciation for the blessings that, that accompany salvation, though I did not have salvation. And I think that's what he's saying here. In fact, I think in the parable that Jesus gave of the sower in Matthew 13 that we just looked at, don't you think that person who had received the word only mentally could say that, that there was a joy there, that, that he had tasted of the heavenly gift, but he wasn't saved, but he had a taste of it. And these Jews, I take it, were like that. They entered into an appreciation of salvation. They knew it so well, we could say, that they even tasted it. He, he goes on to say they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The expression partaker means association. It does not mean possession. The New Testament does not say that you and I uh, are associates of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are ones who possess the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are sealed with the Spirit of God. We're not said to be partakers of the Holy Spirit. In secular Greek, this word was used of a, a joint owner, colleagues, partners, uh, to take part in something. It means one who participates with, an, with another in a common activity. What was happening here? The Spirit of God was working in their heart. They were cooperating to a certain point. He was working. They were cooperating. They were sharing in what the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives up until a certain point. They were associated with the Holy Spirit and what he was doing, but they were still unsaved. That's true as we've, go, as we've gone through John's Gospel. We see that many people shared in Christ's miracles, partook of the Spirit's power, but they weren't saved, were they? I mean, the people in Galilee did that. The Galilean Jews, they weren't believers. Jesus exposed them for, for not being true believers. But they could be those who were said they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. It simply means that there was a common association. They cooperated with him. They've also tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They enjoyed the word of God. They enjoyed it just like I did before I came to know the Lord. I, I remember reading my gospel, and uh, I don't even know which gospel I was in. I, I think especially Matthew, I, I would read, and I, I'd look at everything that was in red letter. I knew that was really important. I've come to see now whether it's in red or black, it's equally important. But everything that Jesus would say, I would just read and read. I really was excited about it. I experienced the good word of God. These people went even further. They not only heard the truths about Christ, and ex but they also experienced the power of God in their midst. What does he mean by that? Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's another warning. Look what he goes on to say. After it was at first confirmed, uh, spoken rather through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, the Lord spoke first. The apostles confirmed it to us. How did they confirm that the word of God was real? This message was true. God, verse 4, also bearing uh, witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. What's he saying? That when they spoke the word, the apostles spoke the word, God validated that this message was true by miracles, by signs, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, by wonders. And these miracles are going to take place during the coming millennial kingdom. That's the powers of the age to come. Have you ever wondered why when, when Jesus came, he did all these miracles? He did it for basically two reasons. Number one, he has a heart of compassion. 
So he did miracles because he loved people and didn't like suffering. But number two, he did it because during the millennium, there's going to be an outpouring of the power of God, and there's going to be no illness, no sickness, no disease. The millennial kingdom is going to be characterized by that. And when Jesus came, they knew, because of the prophecies in the Old Testament, that when Messiah came, he would do all these things and wipe away illness and disease. That's the powers of the age to come. And Jesus was characterized by that. His message is characterized by that. And the millennium is characterized by that. In fact, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4 through 6 says this. Say to those with palpitating heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Now, that's the second coming of Christ. He didn't come with vengeance the first time. The recompense of God will come. But he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's the powers of the age to come. The age to come is the millennium. And these Jews had a taste of it. They tasted the good word of God, they tasted the powers of the age to come. They experienced it in their midst. Still, they rejected. You see how much these these people had? What privileges they had. They were enlightened to the point where they needed no more light. They understood the word clearly. They experienced the blessings of salvation. and, And they appreciated it all. They cooperated with the Holy Spirit as he worked in their lives. They tasted of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And still they would not believe. They were They were thinking about going back to Judaism. They had everything going for them short of salvation. Look at verse 6. And then, after you have all of this, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. If they fall away after having all of this, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because they were at the best point in their lives to repent, and they didn't. If they didn't repent when they had all of this enlightenment, all of this experience, all of this association and working of the Spirit of God in their heart, then they certainly aren't going to repent when the Spirit of God wasn't working as mightily in their lives. Remember, these people were now dull. They were numb. They were sluggish. And the writer is warning them not to go beyond the point of no return. He says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. What more could the Lord do? How much more could he give them? What, what more privileges could they have? Nothing. Nothing. They had reached the height of privilege, and if they wouldn't respond here, it was impossible that they would repent any other time. The word impossible, some want to say the word means difficult. It does not. It means impossible. It is the same word that says it is impossible for God to lie. It's not difficult for God to lie. It's impossible. It's impossible uh, that the blood of bulls and goats should save us. It is impossible... To please God without faith, not just difficult, it's impossible. It's the word used here, impossible. The longer you continue to resist the gospel, the closer you get to a situation that makes it impossible for you to come to Christ. And that's why you should never put off coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some people who say, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow, you may not have tomorrow, for one thing. You may die today. And secondly, if you have tomorrow, you may not come to him tomorrow because your heart may be too cold and calloused. Don't think you have tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. Today is the acceptable time. Now is the time of salvation. You know the glorious truth of this? 
and I want to say this, uh, this is so precious, this passage is not referring to the loss of salvation, but it's referring to the, uh, to the loss of the opportunity to be saved. That's the passage is, is dealing with. It's not saying you'll lose your salvation. It is saying that unbelievers will lose their opportunity to be saved if they reach a point where after having all of this, they harden their heart. Renew. You know what renew means? It means to restore to the original condition. See, you've got to get back to the point where the, once the gospel was fresh. You've got to get back to the point where the word of God was meaningful. You've got to get back to the point where you're, you're excited about it. Because if you're not excited about it, you're not going to accept Christ. So it is impossible, the Bible says, to renew them, to restore them to the original condition if they fall away. They become apostates. An apostate is one who knows it all and then rejects it. Why do you think the Bible is so strong against false teachers? Because they are apostate. They have apostatized from the faith. They are like Judases. They are sons of perdition. The writer goes on further to say this, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and they put him to an open shame. You know why it's impossible to renew them to repentance? For one thing, their heart is so dull. But for another thing, they take their stand with the crucifiers of Christ. When you go back, after having all of this, you will hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he were on, on earth today, you would seek him out so you can put him on a cross because you take your stand with those who have crucified him, and you agree that Jesus was an imposter. He was a false messiah. He was a blasphemer. They charge him with being guilty. That's what it means. They put him to an open shame. When you've, when you've heard it all, and you know the truth, and you turn your back on the living God, and you depart, and you apostatize, you will hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll defile many. That's what Hebrews 12 Five says, it's not speaking of a believer, it's speaking of an apostate. You will defile many by your bitterness. You will be bitter towards the truth. That's why there's so many who have been in, in, on the fringes of Christianity and, and they write critical books against the Bible. And they, they laugh and, and they, they mock those who are believers. Why do they do that? Why can't they just, why can't they just settle down and, and not hate the gospel so much? No, they are bitter. And they crucified themselves the Son of God, and they put him afresh. They put him again to an open shame. They have weighed all the evidence, and they declare that he's guilty as a blasphemer, and they put him on the cross again. If they, they had the chance, they'd literally do it. That's the Jews of Hebrews 6. Why do you think in Hebrews chapter 10, dealing with the same people, the same issue, he says this, Verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, they didn't receive the truth, they received the knowledge of the truth, they go on sinning willfully, they go back to their old ways, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because they'll never come to Christ, only judgment. Verse 2027, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. They're adversaries, they hate the Lord. Verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Listen, this isn't just rejecting the truth. This isn't just rejecting Christ. This is knowing it all on the verge of salvation and then turning back and rejecting Christ Judgment, severe judgment awaits a person like that, like Judas. 
He closes, the writer closes this, this part with an illustration, verse 7 and 8, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. What he's doing here, he's illustrating the truth by nature. He says even nature teaches this. Just as the ground has rain fall upon it, so people of the gospel and in the enlightenment that goes with it and the appreciation of salvation and the, and the, and the spirit of God uh, conviction upon them, all that falls upon the, a, a human heart. The ground that produces fruit is like the person who receives Christ and the spiritual fruit is produced in his life. The ground that uh, produces thorns and thistles is like the person who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The, ground, the gospel fell upon him Enlightenment fell upon him. The Holy Spirit of conviction fell upon him. Appreciation for the gospel fell upon him, but he turned away. He rejected it. And his life proves it because it is unproductive. Just, just gives thorns and thistles, things that are unuseful, useless. Eternal judgment awaits this person. So what are we saying about Hebrews 5 and 6? It's not dealing with Christians. It's dealing with non-Christians. Non-Christian who loses the opportunity to receive salvation. And the passage isn't just for anybody. I don't want you to think, oh, I know someone has rejected Christ and maybe they'll never... It's not just for anybody. It's for people who have all the privileges to accept Christ, the highest level of conviction, and they say no. They, They turn their backs. It's not just about people who reject Christ, because I rejected Christ. And most of you can think back to a time where you consciously rejected Christ. If this were saying that, then none of us would ever be saved. It's referring to rejecting Christ after having full, complete, clear revelation from God. He can give no more, highest level of understanding, and they say no. If you've once been enlightened, you've tasted the blessings that accompany salvation, you've had the work of the Spirit in your life, you've tasted His Word, you know it to be true, you've seen the miracles, perhaps, in people's lives, then don't turn your back from Christ now. Because it may be too late if you do that. If you turn back now, you may never come to Christ. So I say along with the writer to the Hebrews, leave whatever you're clinging to, whether it be Judaism or whether it be any kind of ism. Leave those things that you're clinging to and press on. Come to salvation. You you know it all. Come a little bit further and know the one who's behind it all. Come and know Christ. And come today, because tomorrow may be too late. Tomorrow may be too late. Don't be indecisive. Embrace the Lord Jesus today, because if you are, then your heart may harden to the point of of unbelief, and you will follow your evil, hardened heart in turning away from the living God forever. And you know what makes it more dangerous? Is that you've heard a message like this. That you've heard a message like this, and now you're accountable. Now, not only do you know the truth, but you know the consequences of turning away from the truth. And if you do that after this, then there awaits you a severe judgment. A severe judgment for those who reject the wonderful offer of eternal life in Christ that he offers to anyone who will trust him for salvation. To those who accept that offer, there will be no condemnation. So says Romans 8.1 and a great many other verses. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, and our Bible teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
Today's class was the conclusion of a three-part message. If you'd like to have a CD with the entire message, here's the number to call. 727-239-0306. Ask for message 7273, A Difficult Passage, Part 2. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. If you call outside office hours, please leave us a message with your daytime phone number so we can call you back for details. Perhaps you might have missed some of the earlier broadcasts in this series. Or maybe you have a friend whom you think might benefit from this series about our eternal security. They're all available at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Click on the message archive and scroll down or search for the date you missed. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson, and it's my pleasure to be able to sort of set the stage here on Verse by Verse for Pastor Steve Kreloff. Let me ask you, what is your favorite Bible verse? If you're anything like me, you have lots of favorites, and it would be impossible to choose just one. Among my favorites, though, is 1 John 5.13, which says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that?